We're going to jump back into Judges chapter 12. We're in the Jephthah cycle, or the end of the Jephthah cycle. And what we saw last week is that during the, the Jephthah time, Israel has thoroughly Canaanized, they've thoroughly paganized, they've uh, sevenfold worship of the pagan gods. <clears throat> and as a result, the leader that has arisen among them, that they chose among them, was um, a paganized, thuggish warlord, basically. And uh, that's what we see in Jephthah's life. And he's good. He was good at being a military leader, and he was terrible at being a follower of God. He gave lip service to being a follower of God, but then he also committed probably one of the most, if not the most heinous acts in the Old Testament in the name of God, which was the sacrificing of his daughter. And something that God condemns roundly and repeatedly in Scripture. So, after this, uh, it was after a victory that uh, God had allowed Israel to win. And then uh, on the heels of that comes the terrible events of last week, what he did. And so we really see the type of person, the type of leader that Jephthah was. And that anything that was accomplished would have been accomplished not by his strength or his power, but uh, solely by God's grace. And that's the point later in the New Testament when he's mentioned in the book of Hebrews as an example of faith. Uh, we have to keep in mind those examples of faith are not the hall of heroes, as it's frequently called. Some of them are pretty bad people. And the point is that anything that they accomplished was done through God's will and God's grace rather than through their own power for their own strength. And so we see that in Jephthah. And we're really going to see it in the final judge, who is Samson, when we get to next week. But at the end of Jephthah's life, so after his military victory, just like Gideon, we're starting to see Israel's society unraveling. I mean, it's already been unraveling theologically, but now politically we're going to see it unravel. And ethnically, we're going to see it unravel in this section. Um... So after this victory that he achieves in chapter 12, it says, The men of Ephraim called out their forces, crossed over to Zephon, and they said to Jephthah, Why did you, not, why did you fight the, Amalekites without, or excuse me, the Ammonites without calling us to go with you? So just like they did after Gideon's victory, if you remember, the Ephraimites are always looking for a fight. They're always, something's just been done that helps them, and instead of rejoicing in it, immediately they're critical. And well, why didn't you call us out to fight with you? Why can't we get some of this glory? They did the same thing to Gideon. And Gideon assuaged them. He, he kind of uh, answered them with a gentle answer. Well, Jephthah's not Gideon. And he's not going to answer them with a gentle answer. Uh, but they also don't approach him like they approached Gideon either. They, they, well, they do in the sense that they're kind of cantankerous. You know people like this that are just always something's wrong. Just always something wrong. Even when something good happens, they're going to find something wrong with it. And it's not like a constructive criticism. They're just going to find something. Don't be those people. Everybody hates those people. If you are those people, everybody hates you. <laughs> just know that. And don't be that. It's, it's super annoying and obnoxious. And it's one of the worst traits. And it plagues Christians. It plagues churches. Churches will have an amazing something happen and then the next week, 
brother so-and-so, sister so-and-so, they're upset, you got to call them, you got to tell them what, you know, and, ugh, it's just such a soul-sucking thing to be around people like that. So it's not like the point of this passage, but it's worth mentioning. Just don't, don't be an Ephraimite. Don't be an Ephraimite. Nobody likes them. They're the worst. They're the worst. Um, and so, but beyond just complaining though, they call out and they say, you know, why didn't you call us out to go with you? Now we're going to burn down your house over your head. So now they straight up threaten him like, we're so offended that you didn't include us that we're going to kill you. This shows the level of depravity that Israel's culture had sunk to, by the way. There's also some irony there. Jephthah's house has already been burned down on his head, and he's the one that did it. Last chapter, he burned his own daughter as a sacrifice. That was his household, his only daughter. That was, that was his house. So their threat is, is darkly ironic and darkly humorous in the sense that he's, Jephthah's already burned his own house down, and now whatever they're threatening is like, really? That's your threat to me? Uh, so Jephthah answered, I and my people were engaged in a great struggle with the Ammonites, and although I called, you didn't save me out of their hands. When I saw you wouldn't help, I took my life in my hands and crossed over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave me victory over them. Now why have you come up today to fight me? So his response is, I did call you guys, and you didn't come. Now, nowhere in the text did he call them. So we don't know if he's telling the truth or not. Jephthah's character is one that hasn't proved itself trustworthy necessarily. So he could just be doing what all of us do when we get caught, when somebody calls us on, out on something and we just lie to try, you know, oh, why didn't you invite me to your party? Oh, I did invite you. Your invitation must have got lost in the mail. <laughs> Jephthah could just be doing that. He could just be lying. Um, or he might have called them out and they didn't come. We don't know. We don't know. The text doesn't say, but the text leaves us with some ambiguity because this is, the, this is reflective of Israelite society. There's mistrust. There's intertribal friction. Uh, and there's, we're seeing the type of leadership that Israel has at this point and the type of people that those leaders are called to lead. And it's not a pretty picture. So, verse 4, Jephthah then called together the men of Gilead, that's his tribe, his people. It's, it's a sub-tribe. Gilead's not a tribe. It's like a, a region. So, so there's not even clear tribal delineations anymore, but rather his, his people in his area. And so he called together uh, and fought against Ephraim. The Gileadites struck them down because the Ephraimites had said, you Gileadites are renegades or literally fugitives from Ephraim and Manasseh. So now we see that in addition to saying, why didn't you come and call us out to fight, the real or the underlying tension is one of ethnic superiority. And they're saying, you Gileadites, you aren't even a real tribe. You're just fugitives from Ephraim and Manasseh. And, and the word fugitive means one who flees. So there's a note of cowardice. Like, oh yeah, you're just, you're, you're, you're uh, the leftovers, the, the ones who took flight from Ephraim and Manasseh, our tribe. The, the, you know, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons, if you remember. And so they were two tribes, but they kind of had a close relationship. And he's basically saying, you Gileadites, you're, you're nothing. You're, you're like, half-breeds wouldn't be the, quite the right term because they were Israelite, but, but not real tribe. You're not even a real tribe. So there's just this, there's this, this tribal mindset that they're applying to it that's driving 
this whole conflict to begin with. And that's something that's going to plague Israel. Uh, it already has, but it will continue, is intertribal conflicts. And it's actually going to erupt into a civil war uh, at some point after the death of Solomon when his son takes over. There's going to be a split, and the kingdom's actually going to split in two. And there's going to be uh, times where Israel wars against a couple of the tribes, Judah and, and whoever aligns with them. And eventually, they just become two separate kingdoms. So, so it's, it's, the whole thing comes undone, what was done through the work of Joshua. And we're starting to see it in Judges. And remember, Judges is the book that tells us the downfall of Israel. and shows us how things got from promising and hopeful under Joshua's leadership to abysmal before the rise of Samuel and anointing of Saul and David and Solomon, the, what would be the golden years of the Israel monarchy. So there's this tribal conflict, this ethnic conflict that we see going on. And so verse 5, the Gileadites, Jephthah's tribe or group, captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Ephraim. So where the Jordan River crosses over into Ephraim. And whenever a fugitive of Ephraim said, and that's a little irony, it uses the same term, whenever an actual fugitive of Ephraim, in other words, the Ephraimites came out and they got beat back and so they actually had to flee. But ironically, they had referred to the Gileadites who beat them as the fleers, the fugitives. So there's a little bit of a wordplay in this section that, that gets lost in translation, especially if you're doing the NIV where they use two different words to translate it. But he said, uh, whenever a fugitive, or NIV says survivor, of Ephraim said, let me cross over, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? So Gilead, Jephthah's tribe, they've just beat back the Ammonites. This is in the Transjordan, across the Jordan, and what would today be the east, the, the modern kingdom of Jordan. So they're there, and they've just beaten back an external enemy, which is the Ammonites. And now they're being attacked by their own people. Ephraimites. So they're, they're Israel's enemy has become, no, it's no longer an external enemy, it's, it's themselves. And so there's this conflict, and the border is the Jordan River. That's the boundary. So what uh, Gilead's done is they've captured the fords, the place where you can cross easily, and where all the Ephraimites are crossing, fleeing after they've been beaten, so they're trying to get back to Ephraim, and the Gileadites capture it as a checkpoint. So whenever the stragglers, the ones who had run and hid in the mountains, you know, whenever there's a battle and your team loses, it's not like you have a, a highway you just go back on. Like, you've run. You flee. You go wherever you can, you know, and, and hide until the battle and the fighting stops and the coast is clear, and then you make your way back home. And so that's what they did. And as they were coming back home, they had to pass the fords of the Jordan. And at the fords of the Jordan, the Gileadites had set up basically a checkpoint. And every time somebody comes to cross, they say, are you an Ephraimite or just a normal traveler? And <clears throat> the verse 5, the Gileadites captured the fort. Whenever a survivor of Ephraim said, let me cross, the men of Gilead asked him, are you an Ephraimite? If he replied, no, if he said, no, I'm, I'm not one of them, they said, all right, say Shibboleth. What is Shibboleth? Shibboleth means streams. It can also mean ear of corn or ear of grain, but streams, given that this is taking place at the place where the river is lowest, probably makes sense. Like it, it's pronunciation. Say, say the word Shibboleth. Prove that you're not an Ephraimite. Why? Because the Ephraimites pronounce this word differently. The Ephraimites 
uh, all right, say shibboleth. If he said sibboleth, because he could not pronounce the word correctly, they seized him and killed him at the fords of the Jordan. So it was a, it was a language test. It was a, well, the Ephraimites have a different dialect, or at least a pronunciation, and it's this, this Hebrew word, shibboleth. In Hebrew, there's the, the last three, the, not the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is resh, but the two letters before the last letter. So what would be in our alphabet, X and Y? All right, are the Hebrew letters sin and shin. Sin with a s sound and shin with a sh sound. And the only difference between the two, it's the same letter. It kind of looks like a W. If you ever see Hebrew writing, it's like a funky looking W. Is which side of that W a dot is put on. If it's on one side, it's the s sound. If it's on the other side, it's the sh sound. So in writing, they're indistinguishable because those dots weren't even used. Uh, so there was a lot of fluidity about whether a word is pronounced with an SH or an S. And so in some regions, it would be pronounced Sibboleth. In other regions, it would be pronounced Shibboleth. It's the way you could tell. And so it's like if somebody came down from up north, down to the south, and you're like, are you from the north? No. Say you guys. You guys. You know, or something like that. Um, some northern concept. Uh, or language thing, or, or you know, if a southerner was up in Canada, and they're like, say the word for a group of people, and they'd say y'all. Well, you're clearly from the south if you say y'all. So it's something like that. But the key is, it's it's within the tribes of Israel, but they're they're making this linguistic, ethnic, tribal distinction, and if they pronounce the word wrong, they kill. So anybody who had adopted that pronunciation, whether or not they were Ephraimite or not, maybe they lived among the Ephraimites, maybe they were just from that region, don't know, but they would have been killed too. So it's just this horrible like internal battle that's erupted within Israel after a victory. And so, uh, so in the end, 42,000 or 42 Elifs clans, regiments, groups, however you want to translate that word, Elif, 42 of them were killed at that time. Way back during Ehud's reign, if you remember way back to the uh, early judges and Ehud who, who defeated the Moabite king Eglon, when he uh, wanted to keep the Moabites from returning safely back to their homeland, he set up a checkpoint at the fords of the Jordan, captured it, and he ended up killing 10,000 Moabites, or Eleph of Moabites. Now this is like four times as many Israelites were killed by fellow Israelites than Moabites. And it shows you just the, the free fall that, that Hebrew culture has gone into at this point in its history, is where they're, they're killing numerous times as many of each other as they are of external enemies. So things are just looking terrible. So in the end, verse 7, Jephthah led Israel six years. And then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in a town in Gilead. Six years. That's, a, that's the shortest, I think, I think it's the shortest reign of all the judges. Um, it, and there's nothing about him uh, delivering Israel, as the name judges implies, judging or delivering or saving, as some of the other judges have. It just says he led, which just means he was the guy in charge. Six years and then he died. And he's referred to as Jephthah the Gileadite. Again, not a tribal name, but a regional name. And he died and was buried in Gilead. So, so rather than being the leader of all Israel, he's relegated to just this 
Gileadite character. And, and we can see his reign is anything but spectacular like some of the other judges, especially earlier in the book. Now, we're in the third, we go to the third transition in the book uh, where they give a list of minor judges. So the way the book is structured, there's the early accounts of like uh, Othniel and Ehud and, and uh, Barak and Deborah, which is all good, positive stuff. And then there's a list of a judge right after that, a minor judge, Shamgar. We don't know anything about him other than he was probably a Gentile, probably a mercenary. But he delivered Israel, and he's spoken of favorably. Then there's the next pattern, the next cycle, which was um, Gideon and his son. And Gideon was favorable, sort of, mixed bag, and his son was not. And Abimelech. And so after that cycle, we had Tola and Yair, the two minor judges that are mentioned. And there also were a mixed bag, if you remember. Tola did good. He did deliver Israel. But Yair was more about self-aggrandizing and building up his little mini dynasty. So there's a mixed message in that second section of the judges. Now we're in the third section of the judges. And we've just seen, uh, after the Jephthah cycle, um, we're going to move into the third section when we get to uh, Samson. And so the list that comes now there's not really anything that great about any of these three judges. In fact, look what the text says about it. It says, After him, meaning Jephthah, uh, Ibzon of Bethlehem led Israel. It just says he led. It didn't say he delivered or saved. It just says he led. He had 30 sons and 30 daughters. He gave his daughters away in marriage to those outside his clan, which is fine. That's not a bad thing. That's how you did it because clans were like your kind of extended family and you would marry other clans and all within the same tribe. But So there's, that's not a slight against him. Uh, and for his sons, he brought in 30 young women as wives from outside his clan. Ibsen led Israel seven years, again, not that long, and then Ibsen died and he was buried in Bethlehem. So all we know about him is that he was a polygamist. Because again, we've talked about, you don't, no woman has 30 sons and 30 daughters. Nobody, that's unheard of. <laughs> so he had more than one wife. Again, not a good thing. Never spoken of as, as great in God's eyes, but commented on and recognized as the reality in that day. Part of the society of Israel crumbling. But uh, so all we know about him is his family. And he had a lot of kids. Okay, big deal. Well, it's ironic coming after Jephthah who had only one daughter and he killed her. So now this is a contrast to Jephthah in that regard, but he still didn't do anything great for Israel necessarily. Not like, the early, not like Shamgar or some of the other earlier minor judges like Tola. Then after him, Elon the Zebulonite led Israel ten years. Then Elon died and was buried in Aelon in the land of Zebulun. We don't know anything about him. He led Israel and then he died and he was buried. So again, nothing positive, nothing negative, but nothing positive. Not, he's not delivering Israel from anybody's hands or winning any battles or anything like that. Just the, the, the reigns of these judges are, are getting shorter and shorter or less impressive as the book goes along. After him, Abdon, son of Hillel from Pirathon, led Israel. He had 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode on 70 donkeys. Remember, donkeys are like the Teslas or the Rolls Royce in the ancient world. So these are kids. These, these were well-off kids. If you can put all 40 of your sons, and if you've got 70 donkeys around, that's like Jay Leno-sized fleet of cars kind of thing. Like that is, you're doing well. 
he led Israel eight years. Then Abdon, son of Hillel, died and was buried at Pirathon in Ephraim in the hill country of the Malachites. So again, now all we know about him, he had a big family. And his kids had nice rides. And that's it. That's all we hear. So these three judges that introduce us to the final section, not really that great. There's nothing really that stands out about them from a biblical perspective, from a godly perspective, certainly not from a covenant perspective. It's just Israel culture at this time is just kind of coasting. I mean, there's no major threat after Jephthah for a while, but there's also no turning to God on the part of the nation. You know, people cry out, they turn back, God forgives, He sends a judge, and then they're restored. There's not really any of that. So by the time we get to the next and the last judge in this section, or in this book, who's going to be Samson, the land is kind of has gone back to its old ways. We're going to see, actually, verse, chapter 13, verse 1, it reintroduces the refrain, again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. This is the book of deliverers where judges are raised up to deliver Israel. But at the end of the book, Israel has become Canaanite to the point that God delivers Israel into the hands of the Philistines. What they've sowed, they're now reaping. And so that will set us up for the birth of the final judge, Samson. Probably the most misunderstood of all the judges. Because his life, we're going to see, is, is anything but the life of a hero. Um, and what's going to happen to Israel both during and after Samson's life is pretty terribly tragic. Uh, you know, again, you're used to hearing the, 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 the nursery story, the nursery version, the vacation Bible school version. And the problem is we hear those as kids and don't ever go back and study the actual stories and then when we do that, we realize, whoa, this actual story is very different than what I was told as a kid. This is not very inspiring or fable-worthy. This is not very heroic. This is actually pretty terrible in a lot of ways. And that's one of the things about studying the Bible that I think is helpful for adults is to realize a lot of the stuff we've read, we haven't read this since we were kids. And even then, we didn't read it. We saw it on a flannel graph. How many of you are old enough to remember flannel graphs? <laughs> I am, so I know a lot of you are. Um, or we saw it on a cartoon or a, you know, something like that. And we have just kind of assumed that that's the Bible story. So through this study that we do every week at Ruth's Chris for six years now, hopefully what you're seeing is that there aren't Bible... There, let me put it this way. We don't need to learn Bible stories. What we need to learn is the story of the Bible and the overall narrative. Because Bible stories are like taking a page or at most a chapter out of Huck Finn or Count of Monte Cristo or any other literature, work of literature and history and, and putting that forward as representative of the book. And, and those of you that know, it just doesn't work that way. You have to see the whole story. You have to see the big picture in order to understand those scenes that are pulled out of the story. So with Judges, it's a book that a lot of people don't know what to do with. And because they don't know what to do with Judges, they just end up pulling stories or passages from Judges that make for a good sermon or a good fable or a good moral lesson 
without looking at the span and the flow of the book itself. And when you do that, sometimes you come away with a very, very different picture than what you thought it was about. And that's what you're going to see as we get into this, uh, the story with Samson, is his life is going to be very different than the, uh, the popular depictions. Now, Jephthah is not as well known as Samson culturally, so most, most Christians don't even know who Jephthah is, honestly. Uh, they, the ones who are more biblically literate may know that there is a judge named Jephthah and he did something bad with his daughter and that's probably as far as they go. And that's fine. That's, part, that's why we do this teaching, obviously, to, to get us back into this part of Israel's history. Um, but we always want to be aware that there's stuff that we don't know or aware of what we don't know, rather. In other words, we want to be aware, okay, yes, Scripture is more than just a collection of stories strung together like beads on a pearl necklace. Uh, pearls on a pearl necklace. Um, that, that there's an overall flow. There's a story. And in Judges, again, I've emphasized it, it's a downward trajectory. It's a downward spiral. Things are not getting better for Israel. And this last judge who we've seen before, this penultimate judge, Jephthah, is... Uh, when Israel has thoroughly canonized and they've chosen their own leader, what does it look like? Now, in the next section, God himself is going to raise up someone to deliver Israel, but he's going to be someone who's very much in keeping with the spirit of Israel culture at the time. In other words, we're not going to expect a, 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 a noble, wonderful, David-like figure to arise. We're going to see something much more complicated and nuanced and, and it's going to raise probably as many questions as it answers when, when this guy, Shimshon is his name in Hebrew. We say Samson. Shimshon is going to come. That doesn't sound nearly as tough. You know, Sh oh, I'm Shimshon. Like, okay, whatever. Uh, that doesn't sound as tough as Samson. Uh, but anyway, when he's raised up, it's going to be, there's going to be a lot of questions that are left for the reader to ponder. And then the book still has a bunch of more chapters to go after him. So we'll get to all that. But the, the Jephthah cycle and the last of the minor judges is over. And now next week, we're going to look at the 12th judge that arrives, the final judge, and see where everything goes from there. But we are, ooh, we are two minutes early. Good stuff. All right, guys, there's plenty of food up here if you want some seconds. Otherwise, have a great week. We'll see you next time.